Well, if you haven't already turned to our text, turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to continue with the last six verses of chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Now, this is an interesting text to preach because it's as if we're in on a private conversation between Paul and Timothy. Now, the whole letter is a note between the apostle Paul and his disciple Timothy. It was meant to be read and applied to the whole church. But today is a little bit different. The Apostle Paul is giving Pastor Timothy a personal charge regarding how he is to pastor. It's instructions on how he is to pastor. So in some sense, I'm preaching to myself today. some sense, I'm preaching to me and to the other elders of Redeemer Church of Dubai. You get to be like a fly on the wall listening to God's instructions for those of us who are responsible for shepherding this flock. But it would be wrong to think this sermon is just for the elders. It's a sermon for all of us. First of all, you should know what a pastor should be doing. How should a pastor live and lead? You need to know the type of pastor this church needs in order to protect and shepherd the church. Second, you should pray for me and the other elders. Pray that we would serve like the person Paul describes in this passage. And third, for those men in the church aspiring to be an elder, which is, I hope all of you men are aspiring to the office, this is the elder's job description. You should know it. You should aspire to it. Well, fourth, in the passage, Paul says that Timothy needs to be an example to the flock. If the pastor is to be an example, then that means that the rest of the church needs to aspire to these same things. This word is actually to all of us, whether we're married and have children, whether we're single and working, old or young, this is how we ought to live. And fifth, if you're here and you're not yet a believer, this is what a Christian pastor should look like. There are unfaithful pastors and unfaithful Christians, and I'm sorry if you've been hurt by one of us before. I want you to see from Scripture today, I want you to see straight from the Bible what a godly pastor and a godly Christian should look like. Straight from God. Paul is going to get personal today, not just with Timothy, but with you and with me. All Scripture is profitable for all of us. God had each of us in view when he inspired these words. So if you're taking notes, here's the main point this morning. Healthy churches are led by godly men who are bold and faithful proclaimers of the gospel. I'll repeat that one more time. Healthy churches are led by godly men who are bold and faithful proclaimers of the gospel. But as I said, all of us are to aspire to the characteristics, qualities, and ministry we see here in this passage. You know, as I said in 1 Timothy 3 a few weeks ago, the, the Bible uses elders and pastors, those two words, interchangeably throughout the text to describe the same office. I'm going to use the word pastor in this sermon in the majority of the times I use it because during my preparation I was preaching this text directly to myself. And that was the term I used. So you'll hear me say pastor, I mean pastor, elder, same office, same thing, same person. And Paul charges Timothy with seven things in this passage. Seven things a pastor must be to be faithful to the church. Those seven charges will serve as our outline under that main point I mentioned earlier. 
Well, the first thing we see in this passage is that a pastor is to be bold. Pastor, be bold. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Now, these things likely refers to what Paul has just said about staying true to the gospel and rejecting myths and false gospels. Now, the pastor is not just to teach, though. You see that? The very first word of the passage, command. This kind of preaching is very different than a motivational speech or a marketing pitch. Now, Timothy, don't be afraid. Reject timidity. Stand up. Be the man in the face of false teachers and command. Command the people of God to conform to the word of God. Now, pastors must, must not compromise the truth of God's word under pressure from the culture. I've actually seen this in many churches in international settings. I preached in one diverse church in South Asia a couple years ago when one of the leaders said at lunch, I intentionally don't preach difficult truths or repeat the hard things Jesus said. And he went on to say, I don't teach any controversial doctrines because it would cause unnecessary division. That's also why our church doesn't have elders, church membership, or discipline. These things are just too controversial. Now, I was stunned. I asked him, why? Why would you do that? And he said, why? Equally stunned, he said, why would we want to cause friction in the church body? If we start taking a side theologically, some people will get upset. If we instituted a formal membership, then that would leave some people out of the community. And we wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Now, unfortunately, this pastor's response is not unique. There's a growing trend in world missions and international churches where leaders restrict their preaching and instruction to a kind of lowest common denominator theology. They only preach and talk about the few things that we all agree on. The hope is to minimize division in the church. But when pastors do this, they avoid such soul-satisfying and worship-fueling truths like election and total depravity and substitutionary atonement and the, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the confidence that we have in the bodily return of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. See, by dumbing down doctrine, eventually you lose the gospel. In getting rid of biblical ideas like church membership and church discipline, you lose out on the fulfillment of biblical instruction that the church is to be a body and a family. One could make the case that in your attempt to curb division, you're actually the one being divisive, distancing yourself from the biblical truth. No, pastors don't have the authority to hold back God's truths. We don't change it. We don't minimize it or distort it. The cultural context we minister in can't shape the doctrine we teach. Pastors aren't creative artists. That's not our job. We're messengers. We're heralds. Now a herald is one who declares a specific message for the king, given to him by the king. Now imagine for a minute, it's hard for us to do, but imagine a time without BBC or CNN Imagine a time without the internet or television or even newspapers. And before then, who brought the news to the public? It was heralds. When a general won a big military victory, they didn't tweet the news or make a Facebook post. Instead, they would send a herald into a town center 
And that herald would yell at the top of his lungs the good news. And then the people would trickle back into their villages and spread the news to other people. And then when that herald was, was done in that village, he would run to another village and he would do the same thing. He would proclaim the news in the town center and eventually that news would, would, would spread. But see, the gospel is not just good advice. It's not whatever that herald had on his mind that day. It's not a message that he made up. The herald merely recaps what the king has said and done. Now, the authority of a pastor is in God's word. God's word grows the church. Now, the, the morning I introduced the new sermon series on 1 Peter, it was about three years ago, I believe, I didn't know what the response would be. Because in those first two verses of 1 Peter, that theological doctrine of election comes across clearly. It's that truth that God in his sovereign authority chooses whom will be saved. It's clear throughout scripture. It's clear there in 1 Peter. But afterwards, I was so encouraged because I was approached up right in the front by about a dozen newcomers. And it was their first time with us. And one of them said, Pastor, during your sermon on election, we were jumping up and down in our seats. We were so encouraged that God would elect undeserving sinners for salvation in his son. Pastor, this is very good news. And I rejoiced with them because it is good news that God would choose us dead. Dead and unworthy sinners is unbelievably good news. See, those people experience firsthand how rich doctrine is food for their souls and fuel for worship. May the grace of God we get to add more seats the following weeks because the church grew by 150 people over the next few weeks as we continued on in 1 Peter. I mean, who knew that teaching on election was a church growth strategy? But it was. Our church grew because we as a church wanted rich and worship-fueling doctrine. We wanted nothing less. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Oh, friends, this is the aim of biblical preaching. To proclaim to you the message we have received from God in his word. Nothing more, nothing less. Because it's God's word, pastors can boldly command obedience to it. Oh, pastors, be bold. Well, the second charge to a pastor is to be a godly man. That's the second point. Be godly. Be bold, but, but be godly. Verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. There were some people looking down on Timothy because they thought he was young. Now that word for youth could actually mean someone up to the age of 40. Because he was in ministry with Paul for 15 years up until this time. Timothy's likely at least in his mid-30s. But regardless of whether we consider him young or not, people were looking down on him. Well, here's how you fix it. You don't fight back. You don't argue. Paul says, people are looking down on you because you're young. Fine, that's okay. What's your response, Timothy? Be a godly man. Be a man of God. I've heard it said that the way to make sure people don't look down to you is to give them a reason to look up to you. You walk with God. You'd be a godly example. 
Now, God has always used young men and women throughout church history. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the British prince of preachers, started preaching when he was 17 years old with no education. He had preached hundreds of sermons before he turned 20. John Calvin, the French theologian, wrote the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion in his mid-20s. Amy Carmichael left Ireland for India in her 20s to proclaim the gospel and rescue children from temple prostitution. And she lived there for 55 years without a furlough, without a break. David Brainerd, missionary to the Native Americans, died at 29. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish Presbyterian and trainer of pastors, never made it to 30. 32, 31, 28, 28, 27. That's how old missionaries Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, and Pete Fleming were when they were speared to death for trying to take the gospel to an unreached tribe in South America. Later, some of their young wives, now widows, went in and led the whole tribe to Christ. And of course, Jesus' years of public ministry were between the years of 30 and 33 And friends, God is still using young men and young women in our city today. I think of one young single man who is boldly proclaiming the gospel to university students, even at the threat of his own security. I'm reminded of a young woman who works hard to be a godly witness in her dark workplace. I think of Steve Jennings, our young church planter in Frigera, who is faithfully preaching the gospel right this very minute. And people in the church are growing and coming to faith. Now, the Bible never has a problem with old or young. The issue is never biological age, but it's always spiritual maturity. This is hard for some of us who come from cultures that make gray hair the standard of wisdom. Oh, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Well, how do you do that? Well, Paul gives young Timothy and us five things. First, in speech. Don't fight. Don't argue. Refrain from gossip. Speak well of other people. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Well, two, in conduct. The great Puritan Richard Baxter once said, We need to be careful how we live, lest you unsay with your lives that which you say with your tongues. No, pastors and all Christians must back up our gospel speaking with godly lips. Well, three, in love. Pastors love people. Christians love one another. Four, in faith. A pastor should believe in his heart and the power of God to save sinners. He should trust God through anxious moments. Five, in purity. A pastor and all Christians should strive for holiness. There should not even be a hint of sexual sin in his life. No pornography, no adultery, no emotional affairs. He fights for pure thoughts. Robert Murray McShane, that man I mentioned who died at 29, the trainer of pastors in Scotland, he used to say often, as he trained pastors, he used to say, my congregation's greatest need is my personal holiness. I think he's right. Now, Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Don't let older folks say, you don't know anything. 
Don't let anyone say you're single or you don't have children yet. You can't tell me what to do with my teenagers. Young pastors, young leaders, if you're single and you have the Holy Spirit and the Bible, you have more to say to parents of teens than a professional expert who has a PhD in parenting who scoffs at God's word and rejects Jesus. Friends, here's one of my prayers for this church. It's that I pray often for more young elders at Redeemer. I pray for more men in their 20s and 30s who would rise up, who would grow in maturity, who would grow in grace and stand in the gap and boldly proclaim the gospel and be godly men. Pray for more young elders. I also pray for, for more older elders in their 60s and 70s. I pray for maturing older men who are going to resist spiritual retirement and not waste those years. Pray for more young men because Christ-like character always, always compensates for a lack of calendar credentials. I pray for older men who love Jesus and are models to us of men who have walked the, the race for years and years and years. If you're an older member of the church, just want to encourage you for a minute and exhort you, if you see a younger member of the church doing well, don't discourage them because they're young. Don't look down on them. Don't tell them that they can't teach you anything. Instead, encourage them, learn from them. Spur them on to godliness and good deeds. And younger member of the church, people won't despise your youth if they admire your example. Be a godly man or a godly woman. Well, the third pastoral charge we see in this text is be devoted to God's word. Be bold, be godly, be devoted to God's word. Verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Well, the early church... In every worship gathering that they had, they would have a public reading both from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. They would do this to communicate the continuity and importance of the entire Bible. This is normally what we do in our worship gatherings too. We see exhortation. That refers to preaching. Teaching refers to instruction. It was actually taken for granted in the early church that preaching would be expositional. The public reading would happen first, and then the preaching would simply overflow from it. The pastor would simply explain the text and challenge the people to live out the meaning of the text. The church is to be devoted to the Word of God. This is why our community groups are built around the study of God's Word. It's why we have Friday morning classes and a midweek Bible study. It's why we encourage you to read the scriptures together one-on-one with somebody else. That's why it's a good idea for you to read the Bible alone regularly. I loved Marwan's prayer of confession today. Just, just confessing on behalf of all of us for those of us who haven't even picked up the scriptures for days or even weeks. It's good for us to read on our own. It's good for us to read with our families, with our friends. Be devoted to God's word. Well, the fourth charge. Be a steward of your gifts. Be a steward of your gifts. Verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is referring to some point in time when Paul and the local elders laid hands on Timothy and commissioned him for the ministry. 
Apparently some kind of prophecy was spoken regarding some specific gift Timothy had. Many think this has to do with his teaching ministry. Well, Timothy, Paul's saying, is challenging him to cultivate and to exercise his gifts. Timothy, your gifts are not for admiring on a shelf or a trophy case. They need to be used and cultivated. No, a pastor should be learning and growing and improving. He should be striving to become a better preacher, for example. This is one reason our staff team on Monday mornings takes a whole hour just to review every aspect of this Friday service. When it comes time to review the preaching, every staff member takes time to give me constructive feedback so I can keep improving and growing as a messenger of the gospel. Pastor, Christian, be a steward of your gifts. A fifth charge to Timothy and to us, be a hard-working pastor. Timothy, work hard. Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. A pastor should work hard. Now, we don't overwork, but we also don't underwork. A lazy pastor is an unfaithful pastor. Now, to immerse yourself in them means to be inside them. It means the pastor to so identify his life in the pastoral ministry that he devotes himself to it with all of his heart and all of his soul. Your pastoral ministry is your life. It's a commitment to the good of the church. Now, pastors to be the standard of a hardworking man as he thoughtfully and prayerfully prepares sermons, teaches Bible studies, meets with others for discipleship, counsels members, trains leaders, and more. Why? Well, if a pastor's committed to the ministry in this way, everyone will see their progress. It'll be an encouragement to one another. If, as a pastor spends time with members, his counseling will improve. If he works hard at his preaching over the years, it'll be evident that his preaching is improving. If the pastor studies hard, he'll be growing. He'll be more helpful to the church and discipleship. As a pastor spends time in private devotion, he will grow in kindness love and godliness and he does this, does this all with integrity for what would it profit a pastor if he gained ministries but forfeited his family well the pastor's example of growing in grace will be an encouragement and challenge to his family and to the rest of the church be hard-working well, a sixth charge be watching your life and doctrine be watching your life and doctrine. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch your life and doctrine closely. These are the two pedals of the Christian bicycle. Life, doctrine, life, doctrine, life, doctrine, life, doctrine. A person can't stray from the biblical gospel. A pastor can't stray from it. We can't forget it. We can't bypass and move on from it, graduate from it, get bored of it, assume everybody knows it, stop applying it to our lives, or to go on to some more complex doctrine. Well, the minute the pastor and the elders lose the gospel is the minute the church is off on a path toward destruction. But a pastor must not only watch the doctrine, which I find much easier, he has to watch his own heart. I confess, it's far easier for me to apply a text in a sermon for the whole church 
than to apply that same sermon to my own life. Richard Baxter wrote, It's an error of some pastors who study hard to preach exactly, yet study little or not at all to live exactly. Paul's saying, Pastor, check your heart. What areas of your life are not in line with God's word? Heart work is the hardest work, and I I can think of nothing harder and nothing more impossible to do on your own. The one key to watching our own lives is to make sure there are others watching us. If left to myself, to my own ability to watch my own life, it would be incomplete. I would resemble the man described by C.J. Mahaney in his book called Humility. He writes, As I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed the finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wing-tipped shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. The man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. As he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious he had an important meeting ahead. Well, the man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. Immediately, I noticed a blob of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? Well, it's a funny story, isn't it? But if we're honest, we all have cream cheese moments, don't we? As you and I walk through life, no matter how closely we watch ourselves, we're all prone to having fresh blobs of cream cheese appear on our faces. I've had my share of cream cheese moments, but none bigger than during an 18-month period before we planted this church. One day, our good friends Brady and Amber traveled two hours to talk to me and Gloria. They said they had something important to talk about. They began the conversation by telling us that they were concerned about our marriage and ministry. They pointed out that I was being selfish, that I was treating Gloria poorly, that I was blaming her for the physical disability in my arms. They told me that I was angry, that I was mean, that I was short-tempered. They told us that if things didn't change in our marriage and ministry, that both would end in disaster. They told us that they loved us. They told us that they wanted us to persevere and they prayed for us. And talk about a a feeling of like a ton of bricks just falling on you. And that's how I felt that day. Here we are just months from launching this new church. And I was overwhelmed by their rebuke of my life. But they were right. It was true. I had been growing in bitterness, and I thought that everyone else was the problem, starting with my wife. God used that conversation to show me my sin. Now, just a tip for any of you whenever you think that everyone else is the problem in your life, 
It's normally the case that it's you, Mr. or Mrs. Common Denominator, that's the problem. (laughs) If you think everyone else in your life has a problem, look in the mirror and look at yourself. That was the case for me. I thought my wife was the problem. I thought everyone else was the problem. Finally, I was able to see my sin clearly and realize that it was me. After that conversation with our friends, I came to a renewed understanding of Christ's love for me and his death on the cross on my behalf. I saw the burden of my sin and and how it was lifted from my back, from my shoulders, and placed on Jesus. And by God's grace, I repented of my angry thoughts. I repented of the way I was treating my wife and others. I repented of my mean words and my disengaged behavior toward my family. Well, that confrontation reminded me that we're all too often blinded to our own sin. When I looked in the mirror, I looked great. I had everything in place. But when everyone else saw me, they saw the invisible to me blob of cream cheese that I hadn't dealt with. Oh, friends, we all need grace-driven relationships and conversations. So here's the homework for each of us this week. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're elderly or youth, here's the homework, and it's a two-part assignment for each of us. First, take time this week to study your own heart. Study your own life. Take time away. Don't be doing something else. Don't be distracted. Don't be watching something or reading something. Just take time and just sit and pray and ask God to search your own heart and look at your relationships. Look at your temptations to sin. Look at your marriage. Look at your singleness, your parenting. Look at your work life, your prayer life, your devotional time. Look at your money. Look at your debt. Look at your thought life. And look at anything else you can think of. And ask yourself, are there any patterns of sin and temptation that I can find? Are there any areas that you're not honoring God in? Ask God to show you. Repent of them. And second, this is a bit more difficult for most of us. Find someone, preferably someone who will be honest with you and is not intimidated by you and ask them this question. Are there any blind spots in my life where I'm not watching my life and doctrine? Let me repeat that. You can write it down or remember it and ask it just the way it is. Let me, let me repeat it. Are there any blind spots in my life where I'm not watching my life and doctrine. And then here's the hard part. Ask them that and then just sit there quietly. Give them time to process and to answer. I find that that's the hardest part. I want to put all kinds of disclaimers after that. I want to try to tell them what I think about myself. But just just stop and just sit quietly. Maybe even give them a few days or maybe even a week to think about it and to come back to you with input. This homework is for everybody. If you're 10, 11, or 12 and you're in the Jumpstart ministry or you're a teenager in the Regeneration Youth Group, I want you to do the same thing. And if you don't know someone to ask, then ask your parents for feedback. They love you and they want, you to, they want to see you grow in grace. So ask them. What a, what a wonderful thing to do to go to your parent, your mom or your dad or both of them, and to say, are there blind spots in my life that I don't see? Now, the state of our souls is something too serious to neglect Let's not wait until chaos ensues in our lives before we invite the input of others. Don't resist these relationships. Invite them in. 
I'm so thankful for the sharpening relationships I have in my life. On most Wednesday afternoons, I talk on the phone to my friend John, the man who led me to Christ 20 years ago. We ask each other tough personal questions and we pray for each other. I share my sin with my wife, Gloria. I share it with the other elders who keep me accountable. After our last elder meeting, I talked with Glenn Jones on the car ride back to my, to my flat, asked him for specific prayer requests and told him a few things on my heart and Lord willing, we'll follow up in the future on those things. I asked Jason Barris yesterday if he saw any areas in my life that I wasn't watching closely. Told him to take time to think about it, to look at my life honestly and to help me live a life honorable to God. Because I can't see myself for who I am. I need help. You need help. Oh friend, are you accountable to anyone? You confess your sin. Are you honest about it? Or do you go through the mere formalities of accountability? Maybe you do meet with another Christian, but you hide the real dark stuff. You say just enough to make you feel good about the meeting. You say just enough to make yourself feel like you've said something and you are honest to some degree, but you've really hidden your sin in some dark corner of your soul. If you have some secret sin right now that no one knows about, then friend, you have a big problem. I love my old seminary professor, Howard Hendricks. He was a short man, and towards the end of his life, he had a surgery on one of his eyes. And the surgery was sad, but what was exciting to him and to all of us is he got a big black pirate patch. He was so excited about his pirate patch. It was great that you had Prof. Howard Hendricks, we called him Howie, and it was great because he was a short man about this high. He was 85 years old, and he had a pirate patch, and he would always be so enthusiastic in our classroom. And one day, he was talking about accountability, and he said, you can meet for accountability with someone else. You can ask him all of these questions, but it's all futile if you don't end with this one question. And he would say, go through your questions, go through your conversation, and then end your questions and ask them this last question. Have you lied to me with any of your answers? <laughs> it's a great one, isn't it? You meet with somebody and they're at the end. Have you, have you lied to me? Have you twisted the truth? Just, just any in those answers? Such a good question because I think you're tempted just as I'm tempted to just say just enough to think that I've been honest. We're so easily deceived into thinking that hiding sin is better for us than confessing it. We're so convinced that we need to put our best self forward, that we need to look good, or we need to look like we have it all together. But friend, that's a lie. That's a lie from the evil one. We're all messed up. We all need help. We can't fight for holy lives alone. We're members of one body. We need each other. Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another. Ephesians 5, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Pursue deep, enriching relationships. Join a community group from the ones listed on page 14 in your bulletin. Invite a family over for lunch. And even better, meet a fellow believer for coffee or for lunch and dig into each other's lives. If you don't have someone you're doing that with, just find someone. doesn't matter who. Find someone in this church. Find someone else that you could just say, hey, I need help. I don't really know you. Hi, my name is Dave. Let's meet. doesn't matter. Just be bold. Find someone. Talk to one of the elders. I'd love to pair you up with somebody else. 
We have 400 members in this church. We all need to be connected. If you're not a member, a member of this church, join us. Let us help you. Help us. Let's help one another. Let's reject any notion of permanently casual relationships. Those friendships that never get beyond conversation about work or how the kids are doing. Let's pursue instead what Paul Tripp calls intentionally intrusive relationships. It's where we get into the darkness of each other's lives. This is not the pursuit of nosiness. It's the grace-driven pursuit of holiness. It's not because we want to gossip. It's not because we're nosy. It's because we want to be holy. It's because we want to help each other grow. Well, if you're nervous about sharing your struggles with someone, remember what we've said often from this pulpit. Remember that the cross of Calvary criticizes us more than anyone else can. Because when you look at the cross, you see the wickedness of our sin. That our heinous sin drove the God-man, Jesus Christ, to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Oh, friend, you're messed up. And I'm messed up. We're a wreck. And we will buy the lie of Dubai. We will give in to sin. We will turn away from God if we don't have one another. Friend, the church is not a club for the righteous. It's a refuge for the repentant. So where we come together to grow. We all need each other. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Well, finally, there's a seventh and final charge from Paul. Seventh, be persistent. Be persistent. Verse 16, the end of it. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. I think he says that because pastoral ministry isn't easy. Elders get discouraged. I'll be honest, since we're being honest today, there are times that I feel like quitting my job. I don't know if that's surprising to you. There's times that I feel like quitting. Sometimes it's an ongoing battle. When we have a difficult church discipline case, we see one of our members continue down the road of consistent, unrepentant sin, it grieves my heart. It grieves us as elders. We as elders, we, we weep over it. We agonize over every church discipline case. We agonize over every instance of unrepentant sin. There are sleepless hours at night hurting for the hurting people in this congregation. Some days are very, very sad. There are other stresses. Earlier this week, I was up for several hours one night just struggling in prayer and anxiety over whether we continue to have the freedom to meet in this hotel like we do. Now, we don't take for granted that we get to meet publicly like this. I hope you know this is an honor and a privilege. We might not get to do this forever. It's the grace of God and the generosity of our rulers here. Now, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about being beaten for the ministry. He talks about being stoned for the ministry. He talks about being shipwrecked. But then he adds, verse 28 there, 2 Corinthians 11, he says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. A pastor loves the church he labors for. I love this church. I love you. I love this church. I love all of you. This is my favorite church in the world, and you're my favorite people in the world. I love you. But it's not easy. It's easy to love you. It's not easy to persist sometimes. 
What Paul is saying in this text is, Pastor Timothy, Pastor Dave, elders, it'll be difficult, but don't give up. Press on, don't stop, continue forward. Don't quit the ministry when the stress and anxiety and physical pain and uncertainty rises and you think that running away to a life of ease will make things better. Persist in this. What you're doing is worth it. Pastor, stay strong. Why? Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. Here's why, Timothy. It's hard, young man. It's hard in Ephesus. There are idols everywhere. There are people rioting. There are people persecuting you. There are people looking down on your youth. Timothy, persist in this. Why? Because you will save yourself and your hearers. Here's why you stay, pastor. Because your ministry is a ministry of life and death. Now, is Paul saying that Timothy could save himself? Or that he could somehow save the Ephesians in his own strength? No, that would would be ridiculous. That would contradict everything Paul in the Bible has to say about salvation. No, salvation comes only through the sovereign mercy and grace of God, period. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one shall boast. Now, the call of the pastors to persevere for that reason is by no means inconsistent with the gospel of grace. Salvation always starts and ends with the mercy of God. Always. But there's a sense here that a pastor's faithfulness to the ministry gives assurance of their own salvation and their joy of leading others to Christ. John Stott has said, Perseverance is not the meritorious cause, but rather the ultimate evidence of our salvation. And regarding saving others, the reality of the New Testament is that it often attributes salvation to evangelists. It does that because it's through the preached gospel that God saves people. Jesus could tell Paul that he was sending him to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Paul became all things to all men in order that that by all possible means he might save some. In Romans 10, Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Evangelists are the vehicle God uses to save us. Sound preaching can be the difference between life and death. Friends, this is why we don't play games here at Redeemer. This is why we don't mess around. This is serious business. I will take account before God for every word that I utter from this pulpit. Friends, I felt the weight of this passage this week as I studied it. That I don't quit I don't take this ministry lightly. Our elders don't take this ministry lightly because our work at Redeemer is a ministry with eternal ramifications. It's not just my preaching. It's not just our teaching. It's your personal evangelism. It's your personal outreach and witness that has implications beyond this life. My Christian friend, you are indispensable to God's plan to see all peoples and all tribes and all nations reached with the gospel. Pastor Timothy, elders, pastors, missionaries, and all believers, don't quit. 
Persist in this. Take the gospel and proclaim it to the nations. It's worth it. See, on most nights, I don't want to quit. Most nights, here's what keeps me up in bed at night. The excitement of preaching and sharing the gospel to those who've never heard. The excitement of discipling and training up people to, to live out godly lives in the UAE. It's an honor to proclaim Jesus here. It was a joy to celebrate with many of you in RAK last Friday. Wasn't that such a joy to gather with hundreds of people under that tent on the very ground that a new church will be started? This church has been gathering for two years, but on that plot of land, Lord willing, for decades or until Jesus comes back, there will be a gospel witness in that place. That keeps me up in bed at night in excitement over what the Lord is doing here. God is bringing people from death to life. Oh friend, if you're here and you're not yet a believer, the hope of our church is that as we proclaim the truth of the gospel, we would see dead people come alive. We would pray that you would come alive. Because apart from God, we're all in a bad predicament. Our sin of independence and rebellion against God has left us separated from our creator, our maker, and our God. The bad news is that on our own, we have no way to be reconciled to that God. Apart from divine intervention, each and every one of us, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity or age, each of us, apart from God's intervention, are dead. We have no hope. But friends, the good news that we always proclaim here is that 2,000 years ago, a tomb was empty. But it wasn't just any tomb. There was a God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, God in the flesh, who left heaven, heaven, came to earth, and he lived the way we should have lived. He lived perfectly, perfectly submitted to God. He lived so that he could march to the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did. And he died. And on the third day, he rose from the dead so that when people went to his tomb on the third day to gather his body for a proper burial, he wasn't there. He was gone. The tomb couldn't hold him. The soldiers couldn't contain him. Jesus had risen from the dead, proving that he was and is and will be the Savior of the world. Oh, friend, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that faith comes from hearing this gospel preached. And now if this is your first time here or this is your first time you've ever heard this good news, you've heard it preached. Faith comes by hearing. You must hear. But friend, you can't just hear. You must respond to it. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus to save you. You must do that personally. You can't just assume because your parents were believers that you're a believer or because you come from a certain country that you're a believer or because you sat in these seats week after week that you're a believer. You must personally respond to God in faith. Friends, this is what a Christian has done. If you want to know what a Christian is or what a Christian has done, that's it. There's no checklist that they filled out. There's no good work that they've done because none of us are perfect. What a Christian has done is repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus to save them. If you do that, you'll be saved too. You'll be spared death and brought to everlasting life. I urge you to take this seriously because it is a matter of life and death. Well, pastors, 
fellow Christians, as we've looked through this passage, let us persist in these things. Let us be bold. Let us be godly. Let us be consumed with God's word. Let us be good stewards of God's gifts. Let us be hardworking and let's together watch our lives and doctrine until the very end. Let's start doing that this morning. If you're a believer here, we have an opportunity this morning to practice one of the ways that we watch our lives and doctrine closely. We can examine our lives together as we partake in communion. Communion is a visual display of the gospel we've just talked about. The bread we eat signifies the perfect life Jesus lived. The cup that we drink signifies the blood that was shed on our behalf. But the Bible gives us instruction. It gives us a warning as who should take part in this ordinance of the church. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Friends, if you've repented of your sins and you believe in the same gospel you've heard preached today, we invite you to participate in this meal with us. If not, we encourage you just to just let the bread and let the cup pass you by. If you do profess faith in Jesus and you're joined to his church, but you're engaging in some, some unrepentant sin, we also encourage you, let the bread, let the cup just pass you by. Because scripture warns that there are severe consequences for those who take this meal, which symbolizes our unity in Christ, while at the same time you're holding on to some sin that divides you from Christ's body. Use this time instead to repent of your sin. Seek the unity that comes through Christ's forgiveness and grace. And then after the service, tell someone about it. Apply what we've just talked about in the sermon. Bring out your sin out of the darkness and into the light. Well, now before we take part, let's take some time, even right now, corporately but independently. Let's take a moment in silent reflection to remember Christ's death before us and to watch our lives and doctrine closely to see if we might take part in the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would the cross of Christ be to us the wisdom of God? Would we as a church hold fast to this truth? Would we boldly proclaim it to others and to ourselves? Would we examine our own hearts to see if there are ways our lives are not in line with the gospel? Father, would we repent of our sin and exalt in Jesus? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.